Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our class on St. John Chrysostom's on marriage and family life. We begin with invocation and prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. A reminder before we begin that we will not have this class next week. Uh, in fact, all of our Thursday activities here at Faith, the Confession Absolution, the service, both classes, they're all canceled. Uh, God willing, we will uh, have, our, have our services in one way, shape, or form here on Thanksgiving Day. In St. John Chrysostom, we had gotten through, uh, skipping, skipping some parts, we had gotten through the introduction. And I had, of course, laid out some caveats there, uh, certain things that at least struck me in the introduction as being heavily colored by our age and not Chrysostom's age and our thoughts and not Chrysostom's thoughts. Uh, so caveat emptor when it comes to reading the introduction, though there are certainly some uh, good things about it. Today the plan is to get into the first of the homilies in this particular book, homily 19 on 1 Corinthians 7. It would seem most reasonable to read the pertinent sections in 1 Corinthians 7 so that we have the biblical background and foundation of what it is that Chrysostom is preaching on. For those of you who have read ahead, uh, you, you've gotten an introduction to Chrysostom and his style. Very eloquent, very good rhetorically, excellent rhetorically, and that really is his claim to fame. Uh, but, but also hard-hitting, wouldn't you say? He doesn't, he doesn't mince words, he gets right to the point. So we will take a look at that here after we look at 1 Corinthians 7. In the ESV, the subheading, and we're in the Lutheran Study Bible here, the subheading here is Principles of Marriage. And um, that's really the key part, at least, at least the key part of 1 Corinthians 7 for the first part of Chrysostom's Sermon or Homily 19. Although in truth, he does go all the way through the contents of the seventh chapter. Uh, for the sake of it, let's simply read right now chapter 7, 1 through 16, which is on marriage proper. Then, of course, Paul goes into live as you are called, as does Chrysostom, and then in regard to the unmarried and the widowed, as does Chrysostom. So, uh, for now, chapter uh, 7 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 16. Paul writes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so what do we have here? Uh, the Corinthians obviously wrote Paul. They had some specific questions in regard to marriage, and so he is responding. So now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That seems to be the essence of their question, or at least the content of their question has to do with this. Uh, thus, the parentheses that uh, the editors have put in. Verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. All right, so here Paul introduces a secondary aspect of marriage. In the first place, God creates marriage. You see this back in Genesis. He creates male and female, and he creates uh, the human race such that a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. God makes those two into one flesh, and then God does that quite literally in the one flesh union manifest in children. So there's God's gift of marriage. So marriage is for, um, for, for uh, procreation, and procreation is such a beautiful word, such a beautiful word. 
the creation going forward, moving forward, God the Creator through us His instruments creating, procreation, um, to be fruitful and multiply. Marriage is also for mutual help and consolation, and Genesis has the emphasis on the, the wife in particular being the helpmate of the husband. I will make for you a helper. And so there is to be uh, much mutual support and much mutual joy in marriage, and, and so it's established for these things. Now, all of, all of the establishment of marriage in Genesis takes place prior to the fall, prior to the fall. So marriage isn't a fallen institution. Marriage is a good institution. It carries on after the fall. And after the fall, on account of the, the innate change within humanity, where now we are by nature sinful and unclean, by nature we are opposed to God, concupiscent is the big theological word. Our wills and hearts are bent against him by nature. Now, now marriage takes on an added benefit, and that is to check our lusts and provide a remedy for our sinful uh, and lustful condition. So we see Paul interjecting this here and uh, making this point here in chapter 7. Um, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So, so marriage then, in light of sin, becomes God's cure, uh, or at least God's help in uh, living a chaste life. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, Though equally of essence to, to marriage, on the one hand is, is sexual union. That's one side of the coin. Um, and, and that, well, I mean, rather, that is the coin, <laughs> sexual union. One side of the coin is protecting and keeping that between husband and wife alone so that sexuality isn't expressed outside of marriage, thus falling under the condemnation of the sixth commandment, adultery. The other side of that commandment and a side that maybe needs even more attention in our day and age, is not to deprive one another. Not to deprive one another, except by agreement, and that for a short time. And Paul even says here, you, you see, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Now, this is often so underplayed. Uh, in fact, I, I know for a fact that many pastors are afraid to uh, preach and teach on this topic because it's so controversial and, and because the power structure, despite what it might appear to be, is in fact uh, favoring to women and, and feminism in principle here um, when we simply talk about conjugal rights. Um, now it is true enough, it is true enough that there are times where husbands deny wives and that's, and that's what we need to see is that that's sinful and also, and at least in my experience as a pastor and working with many, many couples, um, so anecdotally take it for what it's worth, but it is also a sin then for wives to deprive their husbands. The principle is that in marriage and becoming one flesh, you are not your own. Your body is not your own. It belongs to the other. So uh, when the other says, hey, um, let's express ourselves maritally, <laughs> uh, to forbid that, to forbid that and say, no, absolutely not, is a violation on the one side of the coin, fairly tantamount to a violation on the other side of the coin of some sort of lesser form of adultery. It doesn't break the one flesh union. But if it becomes chronic, it does. It does. It destroys exactly the essence of marriage. And that's precisely what Paul is dealing with here in the first century. Now, of interest to us is... Uh, 
what Ecclesiastes has to say, one of the best-known Proverbs out of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. This is the first century. Chrysostom is writing and preaching in the fourth century. Luther addresses these very things pastorally in his letters in the 15th century. And here we are in the 21st century, and, and it's the same thing. So uh, there is nothing new under the sun. These are, in some respects, uh, perennial problems in regard to marriage after the fall. I think what makes our situation acute, and that's up for some debate, but I think what makes our situation acute is the, the extreme attacks on the family, the extreme attacks, particularly on the role of husband. Uh, add in a, a dash or a sprinkle or more of feminism, and you really have a, a, a recipe for a toxic power struggle within the marriage. And frequently it is the case that the female feels like her main leverage point is to use her sexuality and to use her body as if it was her own in order to further her own power and, and uh, sense of dominance within the relationship. So, again, take that, take that for what it's worth. That's simply my anecdotal experience, but I think that that's, in many respects, what we're up against. Okay, so... The key here, and a key that Chrysostom uh, latches onto, is here at the end of verse, uh, no, rather the whole of verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So that idea that you are not your own uh, as a fundamental part of marriage. You belong to another. And here we see also a very underplayed and downplayed aspect of the Christological mystery within marriage. Um, Paul talks about this at length in Ephesians chapter 5, for example. And we'll maybe spend some time there. But an aspect of that, an aspect of that is as our marriages were created by God in order to reflect the greater marriage and mystery of Christ and his church, we see this component of, of the selflessness of marriage where you say, I am not my own, I belong to another. That's at the essence and heart of what it is to be a Christian. I am not my own. It's that self-denial. I am not my own. I belong to Christ. He has purchased and won me, um, not with gold or silver, but with his own precious blood. And so he's taken away from me all my sins, all my guilt, and set me free, free from guilt, free from external evils. And this is such a... Uh, such a beautiful, comforting thing. We can, we can glimpse this also in Christian marriages where we decide to live in denial of ourselves and say, I am not my own. I belong to my spouse. Okay? Um, so, so we'll look and see uh, Chrysostom expounding upon that point. Now, the other aspect here that Paul brings out at the end of verse 5 is that there's a spiritual component. And again, Chrysostom capitalizes on this wisely. The spiritual component, um, if you look at verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So uh, again, um, I'll put it in rather, rather stark terms. Uh, when, when a husband denies his wife or a wife denies her husband, effectively, um, the, the spouse doing the denying is feeding the other spouse to the lion, to Satan, saying, here you go. Now Satan, the great tempter and the temptation and passion within your own flesh, I won't quench that for you. You go deal with him. And so, in, in, I mean, that's a, just a stark but true reality. In denying your spouse, it is the same as saying, off you go to the devil um, and let him do, do what he will and let you wrestle against him and your passion on your own. Um, now, of course, it, I, don't, I don't mean to be... Um, I don't mean to overstate the point here. There are obviously subtleties. And the principle still remains that, you know, this class is kind of for adult ears only anyway. <laughs> but, you know, if, if the husband says, well, well, not tonight, I'm too tired, how about tomorrow? Or, you know, or the wife says, uh, you know, I'm too stressed out, how about Saturday? 
and they both come to an agreement on this. There's, there's no sin in that. That's wonderful. That's great. That's within the bounds of what uh, St. Paul is allowing. Again, that point is, um, that point is when, you, when you come to uh, agreement, verse 5, perhaps by agreement for a, a limited time. And one example is prayer. So the idea of um, abstaining sexually, going along with fasting, being rites common in the, in the early Christian church, particularly around... Uh, Lent, perhaps a little bit around Advent, you might, you might agree for a time. Uh, for example, you might abstain from sexual relationship with your spouse during Holy Week. Um, you might also fast during Holy Week or in the days leading up to Holy Week. It's a spiritual discipline. But the key here that Paul's saying is that it be mutually agreed upon. So that's really, that's really kind of the, the other end of the scope. I mean, the one end of the scope is, okay, um, or the spectrum rather is, okay, well, the general principle is, Whenever one of the two wants marital relations, that's when it happens. Um, the other side is, but if you can come to a compromise and a, and a mutual agreement, then, there's, then that's fine too, and there's not going to be any violence done to the relationship. Chrysostom does an excellent job of describing the violence that can be done to the relationship where this becomes chronic or repeating or habitual. Um, and as St. Paul himself points out, there is this dynamic of spiritual warfare involved as well. So we have to, we have to look at that as a reality. Okay, um, thus, thus far, uh, verse 5 of chapter 7. Let me pause there, see if you have any thoughts, any feedback. Um, I'm also counting on those of you who are present here who can interact with me. Uh, you know, to, to keep me balanced and make sure I'm not missing one, one side or the other or missing some thought or the other, as, as you so frequently do in all of our classes. But this one particularly sensitive, because anyone who's been married for any amount of time realizes uh, that, that marriage, is a, marriage is a great blessing. Um, it's also a great cross. And uh, even the most blessed of, of married people bear scars from the past. And so I know it's a sensitive topic. And, and again, my intent isn't to hurt in any way unnecessarily. So I'm, I'm entrusting myself also to you um, to, to point things out that I might be missing or that my, uh, my, met, or my rhetoric might be uh, a little bit imbalanced on. Yes, sir. Uh, Pastor, I have a comment that uh, uh, after 42 years of marriage, uh, this is a very freeing thing also that uh, once you realize that your body is your spouse's mm -hmm. and you act on that it frees you in a way to um, to not give in to temptation because you just say my body, I can't do anything about this temptation because I don't own my body Ah, great you know, point. I just don't own the body and it's a very easy automatic no uh, and a safeguard. Mm -hmm. If you have that in your mind, mm -hmm. it just, boom. Great point, great point, yeah. Um, and that, that really is the, the function, ideally, of a wedding ring in our culture. You know, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to wear a wedding ring. But that, that wedding ring, that, that wedding band, is, is meant to say to you and everyone else, I am not my own. I belong to someone else. And that's precisely your point is what keeps you away from um, manifest temptation and adultery um, is, is that idea that, hey, I don't, I don't belong to me. This isn't my decision to I make. It's already, my body, but, I don't. but I don't. My body belongs to my wife, right? Yeah. yeah. You, know, you can say I wish, but not really I don't. Right, of course, of course, yeah. But that's only yeah. if you understand what the Bible says. Right. Not only yeah. if you actually accept what it says, but yes. other than that, you know, we just like if we talk to a hundred percent of the uh, people that commit adultery, mm -hmm. they always blame it on the on the other person. Mm -hmm. Always, hundred percent mm -hmm. of the time. She made me do it. He made me do it because he didn't want to, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. and, and they also people also use that also as a weapon. Right. Right. Yes, so adultery itself gets used as a weapon. The threat of adultery gets used as a weapon. Yeah, this is true. This is true. And, um, and then when adultery has been committed, as, as your point is, often the one committing the crime says, well, it w blames the spouse, right? It was, yeah, yeah. 
hardly ever hear people saying they always do anyway. Mm -hmm. The devil made me do it. Yes, right. That's the temptation. Like the devil made me do it. The the spouse you sp the spouse made you do it. Um, yeah, it's never my fault, right? Yeah, that's part of the sinful nature within us. I think I think much damage can be done if we don't have these two different paradigms in which to to live and think and and live before God and one another. And those are precisely the two paradigms. I mean, before God, we plead guilty of all sins. And we take blame for everything. I think that that's particularly the, that, that's particularly the case for husbands. Um, there, there is this biblical idea of, of headship. And with that goes, hey, whatever happens, you're, you're the head of your wife. Whatever happens with your body, who's ultimately responsible? Whatever happens with your children, the fruit of that body, the fruit of your one flesh union, that whoever, whatever happens with the household, that's ultimately your responsibility. Before God, we plead guilty of all sins. And so that's, that's dealing, what I'm talking about here, the, this thought paradigm deals with our vertical relationship and how it is we confess to God and, and how it is we come clean before Christ and receive uh, forgiveness that goes all the way to the depths and all the way to the, to, to the furthest extent and thoroughly cleanses us. Now, when we, when we talk about our relationship with one another, the horizontal, not the vertical with God, but the horizontal with one another, then we can ask questions like this, like, well, there's never, there's never a reason for you to you know, commit adultery and break your marriage in that respect. Um, maybe the only other question would be, uh, was, was your wife denying you? Um, you know, was your husband denying you within the marriage? It doesn't justify it, but it shows that there is, I mean, it still remains your sin. It still remains the adulterous sin, but it shows that there is blame to be laid elsewhere. Similarly, in this horizontal paradigm, it's... Um, you know, this is, where, this is where Christ makes allowance for divorce only in the case of uh, sexual unfaithfulness, right? And then there is allowance for divorce. Um, why so? I mean, the rhetoric that these days that, of course, the marriage counselors love because it keeps people coming and it keeps people paying um, is, well, there's mutual fault. You know, maybe your spouse cheated on you, but it's really because you're a big meanie. Ah, that's really unhelpful, really, really unhelpful, um, because biblically speaking, uh, if it, look, we're sinners. We get married. People are going to be mean to each other. Never is that, any, and it, never is that ever an excuse to, to cheat. Um, and so, so there's this idea of like, well, well, what did they do that violated the marriage biblically such that you feel justified in cheating? And, and there the answer is almost never, like, there, no, there never is an answer other than, other than long-term chronic denial of the sexual relationship. That's about it. Um, or, or some sort of physical abuse or prolonged uh, egregious abuse, something like that. Um, so there are always exceptions. But yes, in general, this idea that, um, well, it gets passed on to us very, very, at a very early age. It, it takes two to tango. There's always two people at fault. And as true as that might be in general, in marriage, sometimes it's just not true. Or sometimes someone, or one of the partners has escalated it way beyond uh, what is normal and taken it outside of the scopes of what biblical marriage is. So we need to have a paradigm for that. We need to have a way to talk about that. And that's, that's where, in, even in, um, in the civil sphere, we have this term, good faith. Is someone operating in good faith? What, it's not saying, did they do everything perfectly? It's saying, did they operate in good faith? And in, in terms of the, the language that's been bequeathed to us from Scripture, we have this idea of blamelessness. And blamelessness gets really messed up in radical Lutheranism where it gets taken to this vertical category of like, well, are you blameless? No, no one's blameless. So any claim to be blameless is self-righteous. But Paul, for example, instructs pastors to be blameless. And other Christians are, are uh, encouraged to live blamelessly. Now, what does that mean? That means you're not falling egregiously afoul of the confines of what marriage is. You're not committing adultery. You're not abusing your spouse. You haven't abandoned them. None of this is, you know, there, there, aren't, there aren't these sorts of, like, uh, very chronic problems in the marriage. Uh, then, then you can say that that spouse, despite all their sins and all their failings and all their shortcomings, they are blameless. 
You can't point to one thing that they've done that's outside of the scope of what every other husband and wife has done. And that's kind of the same thing, too, with pastors, of course, and the concept of blameless. It's like, it's not that pastors are perfect. It's that you simply say, hey, they fall into this category of they're not doing anything else that anyone else isn't doing, you know. And, and, and uh, when they transgress that bound, they cease to be blameless on the horizontal level, and there's a problem, and the congregation recognizes that, and the pastor, hopefully, if he's a man of integrity, recognizes that, and out you go. But anyway, I digress. The, the point simply being, this category of blameless exists, and so, you know, let's, let's say that a, a woman comes to me and, you know, and says, my, my husband's been cheating on me. As a pastor is my response, well, what did you do to deserve that? <laughs> you see? You see? Well, it takes two to tango. Sure, you have some blame there, don't you? I mean, come on. Come on. So, uh, so, so what's, what's the response there? You know, well, was there sexual unfaithfulness on your part? No. Was there chronic denial on your part for the, for the marital relationship? No. Okay, then you are blameless. And your husband is to blame. And so, so that's where then the weight of that needs to fall in terms of our law and gospel, potentially in terms of our church discipline, that kind of thing. Um, but what's been missing from Lutheranism for probably a good 50 or 60 years is that horizontal framework in which we need to uh, live and move and have our being. Um, so, so I simply bring that out as a, as a tangent to um, 1 Corinthians 7, as a tangent to your comment um, in regard to, to adultery and, and how, we, how we deal with that. Okay, and of course, suffice it to say, adultery in and of itself, you know, where there's the... Well, maybe this is worth laying out as, as kind of a first principle tool. Um, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, whoever looks at... Uh, a woman with lust in his eye has committed, sin, has committed adultery with her already. Okay. Now, sometimes this gets abused to where all adultery is equal. Right? Um, one woman says, well, my husband slept with the waitress, so, I, uh, so, so that's adultery and I, I want a divorce. And another woman says, well, my husband looked at the waitress, and Jesus says that's adultery, so I want a divorce. You see the problem? You see the problem? So what is Jesus talking about when he says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, if you look at a woman with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery? That's the vertical relationship. That's the relationship we have with God where we plead guilty of all sins and we realize that even if we keep ourselves from manifest sin, the root of sin still dwells in us. That's why we confess every Sunday, I, a poor, miserable sinner. Okay. But that is not meant to be taken into this horizontal framework. Otherwise, everyone would get, be getting divorced and have cause to get divorced all the time. You know. So what constitutes adultery on the, on the horizontal plane? Um, and there it is, it, is usually, it is usually sexual physical contact, contact because that is breaking the sexual physical bond, the one flesh union of, of man and woman. Uh, that kind of thing makes us uncomfortable as Westerners because we're so um, Gnostic in our thinking. But the reality of marriage is it is an earthly, fleshly, bodily relationship. Um, that's, that's what it is. It's why, it's why going outside of that in a bodily relationship with another necessarily breaks uh, that, that bodily relationship with the spouse. Likewise, chronic denial breaks that relationship, that one flesh relationship with the, and bodily relationship with the spouse. So um, we, have to, we have to recognize that, that marriage is much more bodily and earthly and earthy than we're comfortable with. Um, yeah, so, so where, there is, where there is some sort of physical sexual contact that breaks that, there, there is cause then, biblical cause uh, for a divorce. But once again, a, a divorce isn't a foregone conclusion. Um, in the case of, of physical adultery that, that in and of itself breaks a marriage, that marriage may yet be healed if the offended partner determines that it's uh, right to forgive that person in such a way that they're willing to carry on with the marriage. They may forgive that person in such a way that they're unwilling to carry on with that marriage. And as the church, in either case, we say 
God's blessings, let us help you, let us support you. And of course, then divorce for any reason other than this, uh, or other than abandonment, as, as Paul will say. You know, if somebody just takes off and leaves like, permanently. Um, those, are, those are biblically acceptable uh, reasons for a divorce, but anything short of that really isn't, really isn't. Um, if there's some sort of physical abuse or something like that, we can bring that into the equation too. Um, <clears throat> but, the, but the truth of that, the truth of that, if I'm just going to be a, as objective as I can, varies by society and varies uh, by your period in history. Uh, we'll, even, uh, we'll even see Chrysostom allude to that, allude to that, um, where he'll use this, this kind of uh, assumption of um, what, if your, what if your pagan husband wants you to do something contrary to God and you say no and he keeps beating you? you know, it's not like we'll go to the police <laughs> uh, because in his, in his culture, in his society, within bounds, that was uh, acceptable. Um, it's clearly not acceptable in our society and culture whatsoever. Zero tolerance for that. Um, so, so, you know, that's where... That's where uh, you don't have a, a, an explicit proof text in the scriptures about physical abuse, um, but, but it is still there. It's just more difficult to determine. In, in some instances, in extreme instances, of course it isn't. All right. So that takes us through, uh, boy, I'm sorry, I've dwelt on this longer, but we are, in many respects, laying some conceptual framework. I hope it's in some respects uh, enlightening and, and helpful at least in laying this foundation as we go into uh, Chrysostom here momentarily. So verse 6, Paul changes course just very briefly. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What's Paul getting at? Well, Paul was married, now he's a widower, and God has given him the gift of, uh, of celibacy um, such that uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't need or desire the marital relationship, and he is encouraging people to do that if they have that gift. If they don't have that gift, then so be it. It doesn't make you a second-class citizen. Paul just says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Uh, continent is often the word used, continent, um, which again in our culture and time usually means something else. It means you know, free of depends. Uh, but but sexual, uh, uh, being sexually continent um, is, another, is another similar word to celibate or celibacy. Okay? Um, now, verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So again, marriage as a remedy for the disordered sexual desire within us after the fall. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. What's Paul talking about in this section? Here he's talking about what happens when you have two pagan people who are married, and one of them becomes a Christian. Paul is not at all saying that Christians ought to marry pagan people. He explicitly forbids that. And I hate to be so firm about it, but any pastor worth his salt is going to tell you that. Don't, what has light to do with darkness? A Christian can't be, marry an unchristian. But what happens if you have uh, two non-Christians and one of them converts? That's what Paul's addressing here. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. This doesn't have anything to do with salvation. This has to do with the, the fact of, um, remember where, where Paul teaches that uh, you know, we are members of the body of Christ. We take then our bodies and unite them with a prostitute. By no means. So then that same principle gets applied to, okay, well, if, I, if my body as a Christian is a member of Christ, should I unite that with the body of my pagan spouse? And here Paul is addressing that specific issue by saying, yes, it's no problem. You are holy and thus uh, you sanctify your husband in, that, in the marital act, or you are holy and thus you sanctify your wife in that marital act. And then likewise, the children that are born are sanctified. Okay, so that's Paul addressing that specific issue. And of course, Chrysostom does a wonderful job explaining it. So it doesn't have to do with salvation. It has to do with the concept of sanctity, something that we in our culture have largely lost, by the way. Um, but we try to hold on to in small ways, don't we? Uh, in, the, in the court, in the civil sphere, sanctity, uh, you're not, you don't wear your hat or the judge yells at you, hopefully. <laughs> um, in, in church, you, uh, you, you know, in the sanctuary, you recognize you're in a holy place and you, you dress differently, behave differently, that kind of thing. Again, our whole culture is against this, which is why it's confusing to us um, what Paul writes. But this is also what we're fighting for. We're fighting for these holy spaces, whether they be in the civil left-hand kingdom or the, the right-hand kingdom, where we're acknowledging that God's authority is at work, either through the judge or through the pastoral office in this example. Okay. So um, then Paul continues, verse 14, Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So they are sanctified as well. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That means, um, you know, if the, if the pagan in the relationship takes off, um, then the Christian, the brother or sister, uh, is not enslaved. They, they can remarry. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And that rhetoric is used by Paul really to uh, encourage Christians to stay in the marriage. I mean, yes, there's the humbling component of it's God who creates faith and not us. But, but the rhetoric serves to remain in your marriage. You may. You may. You may, you may not. But don't, uh, don't depart from, from the calling you're in in which God calls you to be his child and his Christian. And that flows just right into verse 17 in the next section, to live as you are called. Okay, but that's far enough for our purposes today. Um, any thoughts or any questions as we, as we wrap up that uh, verses 1 through 16 of 1 Corinthians 7? All right. So then let's turn to page 25, and let's uh, jump in with Chrysostom. He, of, quote, uh, of course, begins by quoting verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Chrysostom, in previous chapters of this epistle, St. Paul corrects the three most unpleasant problems of the Corinthian church. First, factionalism within the church. So here, Chris is doing an overview of 1 Corinthians so far and the three major problems that Paul is addressing. Factionalism within the church is number one. Second, the man living in incest. You remember in 1 Corinthians 5, there's this man who is in gross sexual immorality. And the Corinthians apparently are congratulating themselves on how gracious and merciful and gospelly they are by allowing this man to continue on in his sin and continue on in the community. And Paul says, you're crazy. No. Out he goes until he repents. All right, and uh, then the third, the greed which was causing members of the church to sue each other in the public courts. Yeah, and this is, I mean, with one line, with one line, Chrysostom undoes 200 years worth of confusion on this point. Christians can sue, Christians can go to court, Christians can use the legal system. There's nothing unchristian or contrary to Scripture about that. What Paul forbids Christians to do is in that one in the same congregation to sue each other, and in particular over greed, over just simply making a buck. Okay? So once more from Chrysostom, uh, the greed which was causing members of the church to sue each other in the public courts.
He continues, here, however, Paul speaks more gently. He gives his audience a rest from such vulgarities and inserts some advice and exhortation concerning marriage and virginity. Notice that in 2 Corinthians, he does the opposite. He begins with lighter issues and ends with more serious ones. But in this epistle, after he finishes his discourse on virginity, he returns again to more alarming subjects. He does not follow an exact order, but varies his words, sometimes speaking sternly and sometimes gently, as the occasion requires. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, they had written to ask if it was right for a man to abstain from relations with his wife. He answers their question and establishes rules for married life, but places his reply within the context of virginity. It is well for a man not to touch a woman. It is as if he were saying, if you are searching for the best and most lofty path, then do not take a woman at all. But if you want help and security in your weakness, look for a wife. Within marriage, both then and now, one of two things is likely to happen. Either the husband wants to have relations with his wife, but she does not, or vice versa. So here again, Chrysostom in the 4th century, reflecting on Paul in the 1st century, and we reflecting on it here in the 21st century, uh, some things never change. So um, when, husbands, when husbands refuse their wives, as a generality, as a generality, it's, it usually goes something like this. Well, not until you lose 20 pounds and start dressing nicer, um, or not until you do X, Y, or Z that I want you to do. So you can see the, the leverage being used and a kind of nastiness being used there on the part of the husband to, to deny the wife her marital relation. Um, what's the most common kind of rhetoric that females use to deny males? Usually something along the lines of... Uh, well, you've been so bad to me, I don't feel like it, or you've been mean, or I can't trust you, or... Um, yeah, I think those are, those are basically the most common that I hear are just, well, you're not a nice person, so I don't feel like it, and, uh, and then this, the, the magical word that I've, I've heard countless times and never gotten to the bottom of, I don't trust you, which is like this uh, kind of abyss of, okay, well, how, do, how does your husband ever earn that trust back? Well, he can't. <laughs> okay, so then you're perpetually justified. Well, those are uh, those are two examples. Those are two examples. Seems to be um, in both cases that the husband and the wife are trying to use sexuality to manipulate the other person into changing their behavior, which is of course not what sexuality is is for. In fact, sexuality, because and this is again where we get uncomfortable because we're gnostic in our thinking as such a fundamentally bodily relationship, um, the sacrament, if you will, of marriage is the marital act. It is the act that brings intimacy and healing and union for crying out loud. This is so widely rec recognized there are even songs about it. <laughs> um, it secular songs about it. Um, the sexual healing and whatnot. Uh, that it is the bodily sacrament. It is the time in which the body physically expresses the I do of the wedding day and the I forgive you and I'm one flesh with you and we're at peace. We, we may not have everything resolved. We certainly don't. Um, we, we may have ongoing issues, but what is foundational to us remains. So to, to take that away or to abuse that by going outside of that, you can see how destructive that is to, to what marriage um, is at its very essence. Okay, so uh, picking back up there with Chrysostom, looks like about the seventh line down from the top of page 26. Chrysostom writes, notice that Paul speaks of both situations in the same way. Some have claimed incidentally that St. Paul was asked this question in reference to the clergy, but I cannot agree with this because his advice is not given to a particular group of people, but to everyone in general. If he were writing only for priests, he would have said, it is well for a teacher not to touch a woman. But he speaks generally, it is well for a man, he says, not only for a priest. Uh, just stick a finger there for an anecdotal comment, and that is simply, in the 4th century, what are the priests allowed to do that 
the Roman Catholic Church forbids them to do. Get married. <laughs> so, uh, married clergy, right up, until the, right up until the 4th century, and actually a bit beyond that, I believe. Chrysostom continues. Later on, he says, Are you free from a wife? Do not seek marriage. He does not mention priests or teachers, but speaks indefinitely and continues in this tone for the rest of the passage. By saying, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife, he uses this solution to temptation to guide men to the practice of self-control. Ah, and there's, there's the key. There's the key. So um, marriage, marriage is, uh, is, is chastity or sexual continence um, with help. So sometimes, sometimes I think in our overly sexualized age, young people get this idea, well, I'm going to go into marriage and, um, and I'm, I'm never going to have any other desires. My spouse will fulfill all the sexual desires I have and I'll never have to wrestle with any kind of disordered sexual desires. Again, there's this kind of naivete of like, well, the Bible says it's the medicine, so if I take the medicine, I'll be cured. Uh, not so simple, is it? So much better to understand that marriage is the chief help and medicine. Um, but but it, that too, um, if, if, we, uh, if we view marriage rightly, we view marriage as learning chastity with help, learning continence with uh, a certain softness or, or forgiveness or mercy. So the whole point of whether you live outside of marriage or live inside of marriage is to, is to live chastely, to live not for yourself but to live for another. That's the whole f fundamental point. So then if there's anything in marriage that contradicts that, um, then we need to recognize that as an enemy to marriage. Okay, so again, um, worth, worth repeating. Uh, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife. He uses this, Paul uses this uh, solution to temptation to guide men, guide men, right, to the practice of self-control to be satisfied with the spouse and the spouse alone. That's, the, that's God's work in marriage. Okay, um, next paragraph. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, you see the, uh, the footnote there that drops down um, so the RSV, St. John Chrysostom's Greek text of the scriptures used tain ophelomenein. Uh, Sorry, that's a tough one to pronounce. But um, the root there is the same word ophilates in the, Lord's, in the Lord's prayer where we say forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So debts, debts. And thus... Um, uh, so, so, yeah, thus, thus, let the husband pay his debt of honor to his wife. Um, but now, you'll see how Chrysostom uses, uses this and why it's important. He continues, And what are conjugal rights? First, it means that the wife has no power over her own body, but she is her husband's slave and also his ruler. If you refuse to serve your husband properly, you offend God. So wife, if you want to abstain, even for a little while, get your husband's permission first. And of course, it almost goes without saying that the sexes are interchangeable here. The sexes are interchangeable. So, so what, but what Chrysostom does without pulling any punches is he says, he says, when one spouse denies the other, this is that you have offended God. This is a sin against God because he's designed marriage to work in this way. And you're not, you're not punishing your husband because he's a scoundrel or punishing your wife because she's put on too many pounds. You are actually offending God by violating his creation of marriage. So uh, thus, thus Chrysostom, if you refuse to serve your husband, you could add in wife properly, you offend God. Okay. Um, now, picking up where we left off, Chrysostom says, That is why St. Paul speaks of conjugal rights as a debt, to show that neither husband nor wife is his own, or, excuse me, is his or her own master, but rather 
are each other's servants. So this is the true marital task and the true design of marriage is that God would break down our selfishness and cause us to be selfless. And in, in being selfless toward our spouse, we are actually worshiping and glorifying God. Okay. Um, as for you, husband, if a prostitute tries to seduce you, tell her, my body is not my own, but my wife's. There, Bob, that's very similar to your sentiment and your, yeah, your counsel there. And let the wife say the same to any man attempting to undermine her fidelity. My body is not my own, but my husband's. That, by the way, also, I mean, this is so foolish. This is just one example. But this is what's so foolish over um, uh, forever and a day we've had the custom of, of women taking, of wives taking the last name of their husbands. And that's for a purpose. You are not your own. And uh, you're, you're, you're not an individual. You're joining a family. And so why does that need to be attacked in our culture? Well, A, we're against multi-generational families. B, we're against the family unit. And C, we're against any idea that a woman would not belong to herself and be completely autonomous. And so you know, this is something that I've, that I've had to address in premarital counseling sessions with you know, young women wanting to say, well, I'm not gonna, you know, I don't want to take my husband's last name. You're going to take a lot more than your husband's last name in marriage. So if you're not ready to do that, you're probably not ready to get married. That's, that's my answer to that. All right. Uh, four, lines, four lines down from the top of 27. So if neither husband nor wife has power over their own bodies, they have even less control over money. This is a great move. Because it's like he's an experienced pastor or something. The, the, biggest, the biggest fights in marriages are always, always, no matter how, how much the couple feels like, we, we must be one in a million, this is really embarrassing. No, the fights in marriages are always about uh, money, sex, and time. That's it. It doesn't get any more creative than that. We're going to fight over where we put our money. We're going to fight over sex. We don't agree on it. Or we're gonna, and, and or we're going to fight on time, where we spend time, where we... Uh, you know, what we do as a couple. Okay, so uh, he points out money here. He's pointed out sex already. Now here he points out money. Listen carefully, he says. All married men and women, if you cannot call your body your own, then you certainly cannot call your money your own. Now I admit that elsewhere in Scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments, men are given far greater authority. Uh, now quoting Genesis 3.16, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Or, uh, and now, now quoting Ephesians 5, 25 and 33, Husbands, love your wives and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Notice Paul's choice of words. In this passage, however, there is no mention of greater or lesser authority. All right, pause there, keep a finger there because we're going to go right back to it. But, but what is, what is Chrysostom giving to us? He's giving us this beautiful framework. Again, he's giving us these two kind of axes with which to look at marriage. On the one hand, marriage is foundationally uh, about completely offering yourself to another and complete selflessness. And there is no head and there is no body. It's it's complete equality and um, you are equal parts uh, slave of your spouse and master of your spouse and vice versa. There's the first paradigm. But the second paradigm that he doesn't want to get run over is that there is an authority structure laid out in the Bible. There is a, there is a, a sort of economy of how this relationship plays out and works, and that's male headship, male authority, and by the way, male responsibility, as I, as I alluded to earlier. Okay, so, so he's giving us these two different paradigms in, in which we can think, and that is profoundly helpful, profoundly helpful. Because we can realize something here as deep as the Trinitarian mystery itself, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all co-equal, are all fully God. And so in terms of their ontology, in terms of their being, they're all equal, and the dynamics aren't any different. But now in terms of the economy of the Trinity, um, how that interrelationship works out, it's ordered in a way, isn't it? So that, for example, the Son prays to the Father. But does the father pray to the son? No, that would be weird. So there's an economy. There's a relationship. There's even a sort of uh, uh, submission on the part of Christ in regard to the economy, where he, you know, I've come not to do my will, 
but the will of him who sent me, my Father's will. Not my will be done, he prays in the garden, but your will be done. And so there's a, there's a kind of, of if, a submission of his will to the will of his Father. Does that affect their equality? No. And see, that's precisely the point that, that Chrysostom is laying out in terms of marriage. Man and woman, equal in terms of their ontology, in terms of their being, in terms of how God looks at you and values you and made you. There's no, there's no hierarchy there. Equal. And in terms of the essence of marriage, equally self-giving, equally slaves and masters. Okay, what about the economy? What about how it functions? Well, there's a head and a body and a headship, and that, goes, that authority structure goes all the way down to the children, right? Um, so you'll see Paul in the... I'm studying this with some of the, with some of the men on Monday nights, um, what Luther called the house toffle, the house table tax, um, that have to do with the structuring and order of the family. And uh, really, ha- all of these have, have three major points. The first is the husband-wife relationship and authority structure. Next, the husband and wife is one flesh with the children. So you have the parental-child relationship. That's the second. And then the third, the, the master-slave relationship, or in some respects what we might call just the authority structure in, either in the business world in our culture or, or the civil world in our culture. So we'll take a look at this as we, as we progress through homily 19. Some of these same themes will emerge. All right, let me, uh, let me find my place here. Yes, <laughs> somewhere in the middle of that uh, first paragraph that on page 27, um, I'll just pick up a little bit to overlap a little bit. Husbands, love your wives and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Notice Paul's choice of words. In this passage... However, there is no mention of greater or lesser authority. All right, so even though the the Bible talks about greater and lesser authority elsewhere, not in this passage. In this passage, we're focused on the equality aspect, the the ontological aspect. Why does he speak here in terms of equality? Because his subject is conjugal fidelity. He intends for the husband to have the greater responsibility in nearly every concern. But fidelity is an exception. The husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Husband and wife are equally responsible for the honor of their marriage bed. Uh, Do not refuse one another except by agreement. Here quoting verse 5, and Chrysostom comments, What does this really mean? Paul is saying that the wife should not abstain without the husband's consent and vice versa. Why? Because great evils, adulteries, fornications, and broken homes among them have often resulted from this kind of abstinence. Yeah, exactly. Forced abstinence. Um, causes all kinds of havoc. And again, anecdotally, in, in my pastoral experience, I've heard it time and again that, um, and, and frequently this is the case, the, the wife is dragging in the husband by the ear because he's being naughty or uh, maybe he's being naughty online or maybe he's you know, sinning in some other more grievous way even still. And the entire reason why there's all this tension and all this uh, stress and all this um, potential for or actual adulteries, fornications, broken homes, etc., once you finally get down to it, is like, well, my wife hasn't slept with me for a year, and she refuses to. Okay, well, that changes a few things, doesn't it? Oh. So Chrysostom simply pointing out that, that this kind of forced abstinence on, on one side of the, or the other um, has devastating effects. And he, he takes this, he takes this uh, to quite the powerful conclusion here. This is a good place for us to, to draw to a close so we can open with it next week and, and really emphasize it. All right, so again, um, because great evils, adulteries, fornications, and broken homes among them have often resulted from this kind of abstinence. If men fornicate even when they have the consolation of their wives, what do you expect will happen if they are deprived of this? Again, he's not justifying the former. He's saying that's a great evil. But gosh, if if even with 
the full consolation of their wives, they still cheat, then what do you expect will happen if they're deprived of this? Chrysostom continues, no wonder Paul calls such a refusal an act of fraud. And this is actually a very helpful comment in terms of the text. So if you go to, if you drop down to footnote four, refuse, which is the word used, do not refuse one another except by agreement. Refuse is a very weak translation of uh, apostarite. Older translations use defraud, which is certainly the way Chrysostom interprets the phrase. So do not defraud one another except by agreement. Why would it be fraudulent? Because in marriage, you say, in, at the wedding vows, you say, I do, and you give yourself over. Um, now, now you're saying, just kidding, <laughs> or when I feel like it, or when you shape up. And so that's, that's a fraudulent activity. So uh, that's what Paul writes, and that's what Chrysostom is picking up on here. Um, no wonder Paul calls such a refusal an act of fraud, just as he has spoken of conjugal rights as a debt to be paid in order to show the importance of mutual authority within marriage. Yeah, so what's really going on there is when one spouse is denying another, they're denying the mutual authority. And they're saying, nope, at least in this all-important aspect, I'm in charge. Let's simply pick up here with uh, you know, this idea on bottom of page 27, top of page 28, as we meet next week. And if you feel like the horse has been beaten dead, well, um, that's okay. It probably, it probably needs to be emphasized in our day and age. And we are, uh, in short order, going to, going to move on in a slightly different direction. The Lord be with you.